Well, friends, it's really good to be here today with you. Um, and incidentally, it's also my daughter's birthday. She turns 10 today. Wow. And she gets to spend it uh, at chapel with dad. Uh, why don't I pray? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not uh, been silent, but that you have revealed your will to us. And so, Lord, as we look into your word today, uh, show us your way and help us to live it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the things that really irks me is when people ask you for your opinion, knowing full well what they've already decided to do. So it may be the boss at work, uh, and he's serving the kind of snacks the minions uh, want in the tea room, when he's already decided that he's going to buy those cheap, dry bickies. Or, or when the local council does a community consultation yeah, about whether to upgrade your local pool, and then you hear afterwards that it's already been earmarked for closure. Now, of course, I'm guilty myself sometimes, making holiday plans for the family, uh, and then remembering afterwards that I really should ask my wife, <laughs> or the girls, although I'm paying. <laughs> uh, thankfully though, after nearly 20 years of marriage, I've learned not to make those kind of mistakes too often. Uh, but when such mistakes occur, then the response we often hear is this, isn't it? Uh, why bother asking when you've already made up your mind? Now, I know most of you are probably too reverent of God to think like this, but uh, you wonder if God is doing the same thing here with Abraham in our passage today. After all, we know that God has perfect knowledge. Uh, we've just seen in the uh, previous passage that he's called Sarah out for lying when she said she didn't laugh, even though she did. And so you think God would know how many righteous people there are in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so if that's the case, uh, then why did God bother asking Abraham? Why involve him in a decision he's already made? Well, I think two sections in our passage today help us to see why. They're in the outline, uh, which hopefully was handed out at the door. Now, as an aside, I've heard some use this passage as an example of how to pray. The point of the story, they say, is that God is open to changing his mind if only we pray earnestly. Now, I do think that this passage does teach us something about prayer, but, but not in that way. Uh, but more on that later. So let's turn to the first key passage from verses 17 to 19, uh, where we hear why the Lord reveals his plans to Abraham. So let me uh, read it again for you, uh, beginning actually at verse 16. So when the, Lord, uh, when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Now let's just recap for a moment. The Lord has just visited Abraham and Sarah, uh, both old and well advanced in years. But it's promised again that Sarah will bear a son. And it's through this son that God will fulfill his promise to Abraham. So remember that promise in Genesis 12, 
that Abraham will be a great nation, that he and his descendants will be a blessing to those uh, who bless them, and conversely, that those who curse will also be cursed, and that all peoples on earth will be blessed through him. We're all familiar with that, aren't we? It's God's great plan of salvation in history. Uh, It's the way God will achieve his purpose on earth. Well, those very words are echoed again in this section. But here, God determines that God isn't just, uh, Abraham isn't going to be just a recipient of God's blessing. He's going to be God's active agent of it as well. It's God's intention to use him to bless the nations. He and his children, as the great and powerful nation that they will become, will actively administer and dispense that blessing. And so if that's the pivotal role that God intends for them, then it's actually important that the Lord lets them in on those plans. Uh, God will not hide anything from Abraham, he says. Instead, uh, Abraham needs to be schooled in God's way. He needs to learn how to do what is right and just, to bless when God intends to bless, and to judge when God intends to judge. Uh, Then in turn, Abraham will direct his children and his household to do the same after him so that they too will learn how to keep the way of the Lord. Uh, And so what better place to start than with the case of Sodom and Gomorrah? And so while God may already know the fate of these cities, he decides to enter into a discourse with Abraham so that Abraham can learn from it, so that he can be schooled in the way of the Lord. It's just like a maths teacher, isn't it? Uh, When she writes a challenging problem on the board. Now, what does she do? Uh, does she, you know, straight away write out the answer for the students? Uh, she obviously knows what the answer is. She doesn't do that, does she? That's not the best way for students to learn. Uh, instead, she allows the class to work it out for themselves. Uh, they're able to question her on it, perhaps even propose solutions, and, and she may even not point out that they've made mistakes initially. Uh, all that to allow them to learn by trial and error. See, she sort of condescends to their level of understanding, as it were, and in so doing, uh, allow the students to learn for themselves. Well, I, I think this is the exact thing that is happening here with Abraham. The Lord knows exactly what he will do, but he invites Abraham to reason with him, to work through how justice ought to play out in this case. He even allows Abraham to challenge him to weigh his actions, God's actions, even though Abraham is a mere human. Uh, It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, I'm not sure if it's in the footnotes here, but I think it is. In verse 22, that although the main text has it that Abraham remains standing before the Lord, uh, there are some ancient manuscripts that have it the other way around, that it's the Lord that remains standing before Abraham. It's that so God subjects himself to Abraham's scrutiny. And as we look at the next key section, that is exactly what we find. Abraham questions the Lord over his proposed actions. And so look, look at the second section with me, which is from verse 23. Uh, here's what Abraham says. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, 
treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Uh, it's pretty audacious language, isn't it? Far be it from you, uh, not just once but twice. Abraham dares to say that to the Lord. And then the key question, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Now it's highly likely that at this point, Abraham would have had his nephew Lot in mind. And some go so far as to think that that's all he was concerned for, that, that what ex actually happens after this, this exchange, is simply a bargain by Abraham to spare his nephew's life. Well, I'm not so sure about that because uh, for, for a start, the narrative doesn't make mention of Lot, not, not in this section anyway. So there's no hint that Lot's the only thing in Abraham's mind. Uh, moreover, I think we need to take Abraham's words as they are uh, and see in Abraham a man actually wrestling over wickedness and what to do with it. Uh, what is the right thing for the judge to do? Uh, if the righteous are to suffer with the wicked, is this something that the Lord can live with? How do we measure these things? Where do we draw the line? It's almost as if Abraham has a scale in his hands, you know, the, like the scales of justice. And on one side, he's, he's weighed all the wickedness in Sodom. And he's trying to work out how many righteous that is, does it take to put on the other side to balance, balance things out? How many righteous people does it take to save all the wicked of Sodom and Gomorrah? 50? 45? 40? 30, 20, 10. Each time Abraham lowers the numbers, uh, he finds that the judge is still favoring the righteous. But then Abraham stops at 10. Perhaps he, he doesn't dare to go any lower. Uh, but is this where God draws the line? 10 righteous people? Could Abraham have gone even lower? Well, we're left wondering, aren't we? Although if we look at the next chapter, we do get a glimpse of what God's justice looks like. And we see that with God, uh, no wickedness goes unpunished. Uh, both Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Uh, and yet in the midst of that judgment, we also see God's mercy. For God rescues Lot. Uh, and why does he do that? Well, just turn quickly with me to verse 29 in chapter 19. It says there that uh, God remembered Abraham. The Lord remembered his covenant with him. And, and so the Lord is rescued not because of his own righteousness, but rather, I think, because of Abraham's. But let's fast forward to the New Testament because uh, what we glimpse in part in Genesis 19, uh, we now see in full in Jesus. For in Jesus, we see what it means for the Lord to do what is right and just. In his death, we see God's judgment, not just against Sodom and Gomorrah, but against all wickedness. And yet we also see his wonderful rescue, not just for one man, Lord, but for all who trust in his Son. And what a rescue it is, isn't it? A more complete and lasting rescue than, than Lot's ever was. And here too at the cross, we finally get our answer. 
Uh, we get it, don't we? That the, the magic number isn't 10. No, the magic number is 1. And all it takes is for one righteous person, namely the Lord Jesus, to save all the wicked. So if you put Jesus' obedience on the one side of the scale, it will carry the weight of all the sin of the world. Uh, for Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 19, uh, which is on your outline, just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, that is through Abraham, uh, Adam, so also through the obedience of the one man, that is Jesus, the many will be made righteous. And so in Christ, God finally makes good his promise to Abraham here. This is God's master plan, that through Jesus, the seed of Abraham, all nations of the earth will be blessed. All wickedness is punished as God's justice demands, uh, and yet any sinner can find faith, uh, can find blessing through faith in him. That is the great promise. Uh, but there is more, actually, because in Christ, what we also find is the perfect example of what, what it means to keep the way of the Lord, to do what is right and just. You see, uh, when the Lord came down in Genesis 18, he came down only for a day to walk with Abraham. But in the person of the Lord Jesus, uh, he came down for a lifetime to be with his people on earth. So when Jesus uh, was on this earth day by day, month by month, his disciples actually got to see him in action. They ate with him, they talked with him, and as they did, they were schooled in the way of the Lord. They saw what it means to, to live and to do what is right and just. All the way to the point where Jesus laid down his life for them. Now Jesus did all this, uh, why? Well, because like Abraham, the disciples too would one day become active agents of God's blessing. As they proclaimed the gospel to the ends of the earth, declaring God's promise in Genesis fulfilled, they would be agents of God's blessing. And so Jesus too hid nothing from them. Uh, I wonder if you remember that amazing declaration that Jesus made in the upper room in John's Gospel, chapter 15 and verse 15. He said, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. So Jesus did not withhold the master's business from his disciples. He, everything that he learned from the Father he made known to them. Just think what an amazing statement that is. God's master plan for creation, for this world, was given to them, lies open before them. They could see, they could understand all of God's purposes and will. And this to mere disciples, mere humans. And, and friends, every time we open God's word, this is the very same privilege that is also afforded to us. Are we to enter into the school of the judge? Through the testimony of the prophets and of the apostles, we too have access to the master's plan. 
we are privy to his purpose to the world and how his plan has come to pass in the advance of the gospel. We may think that all the action is, I don't know, up where the UN is or in Canberra, but no, actually, it is here with us. God's master plan is open before us. And likewise, as we pray, especially as we pray with our Bibles opened, uh, we too enter into an audience with God. Just like Abraham, we are able to quiz the judge of the earth. We are able to ask him, what is the right and just thing to do uh, in our lives, in our church, for this world? We have access to the judge of all the earth. What a great and awesome privilege, isn't it? To be able to do that just by praying. And yet I know that many will look at us and they may scoff at how lame and feeble it all sounds. I mean, imagine standing up at a TED talk and telling the audience that the key to changing the world is to study the Bible and pray. Um, or appearing on Q&A and saying that the most important change movement in the world is the local church and the Sunday gathering. Imagine Tony Jones's face. <laughs> Imagine his face if you said that the true change makers in this world are those faithful old ladies in the front pew of your church who have been coming each week for the last 50 years, praying for gospel ministry, supporting missions, and encouraging others in the church with God's word. You'd get incredulous looks, wouldn't you? And yet, that is exactly how the Lord is advancing the gospel. This is his master plan for this world. That through the many disciples of Jesus, faithfully going about their master's business, opening God's word, and learning to keep the way of the Lord, and praying for wisdom to do what is right and just. So, as I close, let me encourage all of us not to lose confidence in this ministry, the ministry of the Word and prayer. I, I know it's like just saying it, it just sounds like a motherhood statement, doesn't it? But I have to say that um, actually it's very easy in ministry, in our own lives, to get distracted from it, from the Word and from prayer. There's always some other more important thing to do, some other more urgent thing to do. But when we prioritize these things in our lives, in ministry, and teach and encourage others to do the same, then what we're doing is we're turning up at school, at the school of the judge of all the earth. And that's a great place to be in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again that you have not hid anything from us that you want us to grow and you want us to be able to keep the way of the Lord, to know what to do, uh, what to do that is right and just. And we thank you that in Christ Jesus, uh, you have fulfilled all that you've promised. Uh, you've caused the apostles, the prophets to write it down for us so that if we open your word, we gain access to this rich wisdom for life this rich knowledge and understanding of your purpose and will so that it might guide us as we live our lives, as we lead our churches and as we share the gospel with others in this world. So help us, Lord, to keep persevering in this. Help us to keep praying 
so that we may depend on you. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.